Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Hello again, Sydney. I can't do a ghost-faced voice. Hello, Sydney. <laughs> Is that closer to what you want? No, because now you sound like the <laughs> I want chocolate from chocolate from SpongeBob. I always hated chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how scary would it be though if you're in a scream movie and you pick up the phone and instead of getting <laughs> ghost face, you just get like I remember chocolate. I remember chocolate. <laughs> Be ridiculous. <laughs> rub, rub me with this chocolate, you lazy Mary. <laughs> Look at Scream 2 and SpongeBob. That's what we're doing here today, folks. Yeah, that's our brand. They're both 90s icons. <laughs> so we are ending sequel month with a slasher classic, Scream 2. Uh, if you haven't listened to our episode on the first Scream, go back and do that. But what was nice is we talked about Scream last year because, oh, it, it goes in with Scream 5. What what a wonderful plan. Well, this is going with Scream 6, which is now in theaters, and y'all should all check it out. And we are not going to be talking about that in the event that you haven't seen it. Correct. So don't worry about spoilers. You you, you don't have to. We're not going to do that because yeah. we love you and we care about you. Yeah. Uh, so if you are one of our Patreon subscribers, you already know that this episode initially was supposed to have the wonderful return of Michael Kennedy, who co-wrote the film Freaky. So you can definitely go back and listen to our Freaky episode as well because there is probably no one else on the planet with more documented proof of loving Scream 2 than Michael Kennedy. Yeah, um, I believe when we announced it, somebody said, oh, it would make sense for you to bring Michael on. He's obsessed with that movie. Right. <laughs> so this this is his brand pinched Italian hand emoji. Yes, this is very much his baby. Um, however, Michael is currently shooting a new movie because he's really cool and impressive he's like that. He's making movie magic. He's making movie magic. So we're not going to be having an active discussion with him throughout this episode. He has provided us with a little bit of a, a soundbite of why he loves Scream 2 so much, why it means so much to him. So we'll be including that in the show. So Michael is still a part of this episode, even though he couldn't be with us actively uh, because, you know, he's making a fucking movie. He's oh, being cool. He tried. He tried real hard. It just wasn't it coming. It just wasn't to, happening. It wasn't in the cards. The schedule would not allow for it. Yep. This is how the, this is how these things happen, and you know the show the show must go on. So mm -hmm. we are here today to talk about Scream Two. So Harmony, we talked in the first Scream movie about why the scary movie films have kind of ruined the Scream franchise for you. Does that also apply to Scream Two? It does not apply to the Scream franchise. It applies to Scream 1 and 2 specifically because okay. those are the ones that are lambasted in the first scary movie. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it is to a lesser degree in this movie because I think only like two scenes are really used for scary movie. Um, obviously, the movie theater scene mm-hmm. where you have the comedic genius of an old lady saying your ass is grass while cutting Regina Hall's throat. Uh-huh. Um, ha ha ha, I guess. And I think the other one is when she, uh, when Sarah Michelle Gellar is running and throws like a bicycle mm-hmm. down the stairs because that's where you get like him running from a piano and other stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's specifically the two scenes from this one that are in Scary Movie 1. Though I will say it has shaped my perception of Scream 2. Okay. In Elaborate. That, yes. So Scream 1 is a very funny movie. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have characters like Stu and Tatum and depending on what you consider comedy, Jamie Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fun. Mm-hmm. This movie is not as fun. Mm-hmm. And it feels weird because my perception of Scream, even though I can rationalize the actually very horrifying and mean-spirited situations of the movies, mm-hmm. it always feels like a comedy. Mm-hmm. And this one feels the least like a comedy of all of the Scream movies. Yeah, this one gets really serious. And that's not to say that there aren't moments of comedy, because there absolutely are. uh, And we will definitely talk about them. But Scream 2 very much feels like, okay, the last movie had a lot of levity. It's time to get serious now. Well, yeah, kids' gloves are off. Um, Even you have Randy saying, like, oh, well, the kills are more brutal and this and this and this. Because it's a sequel, baby. Mm Mm-hmm. And and that's exactly what we're getting. Do you remember the first time you saw Scream 2? I don't know. Probably around the same time I saw Scream 1, I okay. think. Most likely I saw it across the street at my neighbor's house because that's where we rented all the R-rated movies mm-hmm. because they didn't care there if we watched them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't remember having particularly strong feelings about it. It's... It's very unfortunate that my first Scream movie that was not influenced in some way by Scary Movie is the third one. Yeah, that's a that's a that's tragedy. A goddamn tragedy, that's a isn't crime. it? <laughs> Ugh. But I don't know. I don't I don't have any specific memories attached to it mm-hmm. outside of just the tangibility of like Leonardo DiCaprio meme pointing at the thing going, "Ooh, it's like the other movie." <laughs> no, that that makes sense to me. It it does. Uh, this is another one I saw way too young. Of course, because that's how I saw it. Because your life of the is movies. she's too young. <laughs> My life is she's too young, but with a lot less syphilis. Actually, zero cases of syphilis. Congrats! Um, but <laughs> I'm really proud of you. <laughs> if you don't know what that joke is, uh, you you will eventually on, on an episode. One day we'll do she's too young. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Um, but yeah, so Scream Two is a movie that. I love dearly this is consistently duking it out for like the top spot uh on my always evolving and changing scream ranking because I love this movie mm-hmm. um it speaks to a lot of sensibilities there's random theater in here and Rebecca Gayhart what more could I want True. um <laughs> also this is my favorite of the Gail Weathers haircut I love the red streak Bob she's got going on. I think she looks great. A lot, lot of red hair in this movie. There's so much red um, hair in this movie. I will say I like Gail's outfits the best in this one because they all look like things I would have gotten at the thrift store mm-hmm. and would have tried to have pulled off, but I just did not have the bone structure for And the best part about all of her outfits, too, is that she's constantly being juxtaposed against, like, all of these other, like, uptight reporter ladies. And their beige. With their beige. Their Easter colors. Their beige (laughs) suits and taupe shoes and terrible Fox News anchor hair. It's great. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Because she's a rebel. She's a That's how you know she's a rebel. Yeah. And this one, I think, also does have to deal with the memification of its opening scene because of the scary movie movies, like we talked about Mm -hmm. with the last one, where... 
everybody forgets how mean and brutal the openings of Scream and Scream 2 are because they're parodied so often. Mm-hmm. I mean, earlier this week, I saw people using the Regina Hall, like, damn, this is scary, uh, like, little video clip from Scary Movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, that still, Regina. yeah, it still gets tracked. Well, one, it's fucking hilarious. I mean, she's so hilarious. Her in that and movie. Anna Ferris. <laughs> to put it generously, they make magic out of bad material. Yeah, they're so funny in those movies. So, like, I understand completely why, like, that happens um, because it's great. Mm-hmm. But I think because of that, yeah, people do forget the opening of Scream 2 equally as brutal, equally as mean, equally as intense. And, you know, it's just because in everybody's brains, it's Regina Hall throwing popcorn and screaming. Yeah. Um, when really, it's brutal. And we'll we'll get into that as well. But if people have somehow not seen Scream 2, which if that's the case, why, why are you listening to us right now? You should be watching Scream 2. There's an entire Scream channel on Pluto TV right now. Always got to give the shout out to Pluto TV because we love you very deeply. Love Pluto. Love Tubi. It's how we watched this, but uh, <laughs> the plot synopsis of Scream 2 is that two years after the first series of murders, as Sydney acclimates to college life, someone donning a ghost face costume begins a new string of killings. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, nice and easy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's more to it than that, but there's not more to it than that. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice and easy. Big fan. Um, so before we start picking apart like the actual story... The context surrounding this movie is pretty interesting, uh, to say the least. So, Harmony, what can you tell me about the magical world of 1997? So, there's a reason that Clueless was the first episode that we ever did on the podcast, and it felt like the movie that jump-started the 90s teen film, which was obviously the teen films of our adolescence. Mm-hmm. But that's not totally true, because if you look at the teen releases between 95 when Clueless comes out and, honestly, most of 98, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of slim pickings for a, like, clue, for a Clueless-style teen film. Horror films have done very well this whole time. Obviously, you have The Craft, you have The Scream movies, you have The Faculty, you have I Know What You Did Last Summer. Kevin Williams is, and all the people who are trying to rip him off are just doing a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Kevin Williamson has a stranglehold on like a five-year period of teen horror movies. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the horror genre has always kind of been its its own thing. It's, it's, it's always been ubiquitous with the teen genre because we always love killing teens in horror movies. But outside of that... Nothing has anything to do with each other in the slightest. Okay. So we have the This Ends at Prom alum of 1997's made-for-TV Cinderella. Mm-hmm. You have Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Hell yes. You have Titanic. Also hell yes. And outside of those and horror movies, you get like Gregoraki's Nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, Gummo, which I Ooh. read that and BJ went, oh God, Gummo. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a fun one to add to your watch list out there, friends, but... uh. Trigger warning. Yeah. The uh, end. That's that, all I'm saying. That's all I know. Um, Good Burger. Which, which is getting a sequel as of last night. Hell yeah. Just crazy to think about. Like, I'll, I'll watch it <laughs> cautiously. I'm optimistic. I don't know. I I don't think it's going to be good, but I'll be happy to see Keenan and Kel. You know what? Like, I have I have high hopes. I was really excited to see them come back for that Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that was great. Thing <laughs> that they did for the Keenan and Kel show. Like, that was wonderful. Agreed. So... 
Outside of those, I don't know, it gets, you get a bit in the weeds. Like, mm-hmm. there's indie films. There's a movie from Canada called Kitchen Party that I know nothing about other than it's a party that takes place in a kitchen, which is generally where I am at parties. Mm-hmm. So if, like, it's, if we're not hanging out with the weird animal that's walking around very confused why there are so many people here, we're in the kitchen. Yeah, like, that is, that's my kind of party. And a movie starring Patrick Stewart that I never heard of before that is... One of the most insane things I can imagine for a 1997 <laughs> film, it's called Masterminds, and it's where Patrick Stewart apparently is the head of security at a very upscale school and ends up holding the children hostage of all of the richest people in the country at gunpoint. Hey, it's 97. And then the world hasn't changed yet. And then the bad boy has to die hard his way through the school to save the day. So it's Die Hard Junior. It's Die Hard in a school, but it feels like a kid's movie, but there's a lot of guns and explosions. So it's kind of PG-13 kid appropriate. It's one of the most strange things I've ever seen for what it is. And also, wow, like... The world was so different before Columbine. Yeah. This is one of those movies that reminds you of how different it was. Definitely. I mean, we talk a lot when we get to the 1999 movies about how many stories had to change because of Columbine. I mean, the Kevin Williamson teaching Mrs. Tingle, like Mm -hmm. that had to change dramatically uh, because of Columbine. So yeah, that's why a film like Mastermind could exist in 97 because the world hadn't changed yet, mm-hmm. uh, which is wild. Um, but you talking about that made me want to debunk something often attributed to Scream 2. Oh, yes, I know exactly what we're talking It's the intersection of reality that Scream tends to play with. So Scream 2 deals with copycat killers, and there has long since been this rumor that Scream 2 was inspired by a real crime that happened by two killers who said they were inspired by Scream, mm-hmm. and that's why this happens. And so what people are talking about is an event that happened in 2006. Almost 10 years later. So almost 10 years later. So that's ridiculous and obviously not true. But there was a very real murder of a young woman named Cassie Jo Stoddard uh, by two of her classmates, Brian Lee Draper and Tori Michael Adamsik. I think that's how you say his last name. But they cited a lot of famous serial killers and then also name drop Scream as like their inspirations for their crimes. Uh, one of the things they did as a quote-unquote alibi was, uh, you know, saying that they were at the movies when in reality they were plotting. Like, it's this whole thing. But because of that event, there has been a lot of rumor milling over the last, like, 15 years or so where people are like, yeah, Scream 2 is inspired by a real murder that happened. And that's not true um, because, one, timeline-wise, that doesn't make sense. But also, uh, Kevin Williamson, when he was pitching the first Scream, Part of his pitch package was the idea that this could be a potential franchise um, and had a treatment already like five pages or so of what a potential sequel would look like, which included the plot of copycat killers. Mm -hmm. So this idea for the sequel has been in place since before the first Scream was ever even made. So whatever rumors people like to spread about how Scream 2 is inspired by real life events or Scream 2 is trying to profit off of real, real true life crime, that's bullshit. Um, That's just clickbaity stuff that people are trying to spread around because they want to get outrage clicks. Cinematic creepypasta. (laughs) Right. And like, that's just, it's not true. That's, that's not what happened. Um, So I'm glad that we got that out of the way. But in terms of real production issues and woes, uh, something else that people might not know about Scream 2 is that Scream 2 is one of the first major studio films to be impacted by uh, online leaks. 
the parts of the scripts were leaked online. Uh, the killer's identities were leaked online. And that forced Kevin Williamson to have to do a lot of rewriting on the fly. Um, reportedly, some of the pages were being finished like the day they were shooting. They had to restructure a lot of characters. They had to change who the killers were. Uh, I guess Randy Meeks's character changes quite a bit uh, because of it. And it's fascinating to see that, like, even in the early years of the internet, because, like, this is pre-social media, but we had forums and we had chat rooms and we had all sorts of weird stuff. And sure. it was the wild west of the internet in the late 90s. Um, I mean, what are you doing on the internet in 1997 if you're not talking to other people? porn yeah but. <laughs> like there's not much else to do there right um so th i think that that's also really interesting is that we talk a lot about how horror has always been at the forefront of cinema a lot of cinematic innovation is found in horror movies and uh we can kind of point to our current version of like spoiler culture going back to scream 2 and that's not to say that like spoiler culture hasn't always existed it always has like mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that's the basis of Psycho is like, don't... Uh, well, yeah, don't spoil it. Alfred Hitchcock went and personally bought like every copy he could of yeah. the novel that Psycho is based on because he didn't want people to know the ending. Mm -hmm. So like that's always been a thing. But in terms of like leaking online and it having a direct impact on how an in-production film is going to continue, that goes back to Scream 2. The way that we know things in the new millennium. Correct. Um, and I, I always found that really interesting. And I think to some extent, like you can kind of see that in this film? Um, I, I would say it shows a mm -hmm. bit. Uh, some of the new characters in particular are rather underwritten. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think, I think it, it, once you are aware of it, it makes certain things make sense. And for me, it makes the final outcome of Scream 2 and like what movie it becomes so much more impressive to mm -hmm. know that they had so much stacked against it. Like you're, you're doing the follow-up of one of the biggest movies in history that completely changes the horror genre. Mm -hmm. You also have all of your big reveals spoiled. So now you have to figure it out and redo it on the fly. Oh, yeah, especially because your movie is a whodunit. Mm -hmm. Which is not necessarily the case for most slasher movies. Exactly, because typically in a slasher, you, you know who you it. know who it is. You know it's Jason Voorhees. You know it's Michael Myers. Yeah, you don't know who Ghostface is in these movies, and that's part of the fun. So to know that they had all of these problems that are you know outside of their control, and for this movie to still rock as much as it does, like again, Kevin Williamson is the man. Like he <laughs> he's no misses for me. I love everything that he does. Alrighty, so before we dive in and talk about the plot and the characters of Scream 2, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Hey there, prom party. Hopefully you are enjoying March's sequel month. We have so much stuff popping off on the Patreon this month, and I only realized when I put it on a list to record these things how much we actually do over there sometimes. The suggestion box that we introduced last month is very, very full of awesome movies. Um, we are always looking for more. And honestly, if we end up with duplicates, then that just lets us know that it's a high priority. And then we pay a little more attention to that one. Also coming to the Patreon this month for our Sadie Hawkins boy episodes. We're doing Bill and Ted and Ready to Rumble for all the people who are craving us to talk about more wrestling stuff more consistently. 
for our top tier. We're also still working our way through Freaks and Geeks. It's been a really fun rewatch, and we have three really good episodes we're covering this month, but I think I can probably get away with saying that every month, honestly. Also, we have the monthly playlist, BJ's official This Ends at Prom newsletter, and for our musical milestone, we are covering the mistreatment and ascension of Rebecca Black, who just released her first official album last month. In addition to all of the cool new things we've got going on, there's the extensive back catalog of previously released stuff. And as always, if you're not able to subscribe to the Patreon, we totally understand. Just go ahead and give us that Dave Meltzer five-star rating and maybe share us with a friend who you think enjoys what we will do. With all that out of the way, thank you so much. And now back to the movie. So we are in a whole new world for Scream 2. We're also, in college. We're in college. It's really funny because with Scream 6 out, everyone's like, they're finally leaving Woodsboro. They already fucking left Woodsboro. We're in Ohio now. Yeah. We're in a college in Ohio. Yeah, I believe to steal a quote from one of our friends, how traumatic was this for Sydney that she left Southern California and went to Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> right? So yeah, Sydney's away at college. Um, She and Randy are going to the same school for, I assume, like, solidarity, safety reasons, or because Randy's a fucking creep and will follow Sydney anywhere she goes. Yes. Um, but Sydney's at college, and this, this is our, our whole new world. She's got a boyfriend. She's got a cool roommate. She has a dorm room that is bigger than any dorm room I've ever seen. Oh, it's got like 15-foot <laughs> ceilings. The ceilings are so high. Um, it, it's incredible. So that, that's what our girl is up to. That's what she's been up to. And everything seems normal for her. But then... The stab movies are made. Oh, yeah. This is our introduction to the in-universe meta-commentary movie franchise on Scream known as Stab. The Woodsboro Murders book that Gail Weathers writes is a huge hit. It gets optioned. It gets turned into a movie. Yes, starring Tori Spelling as uh, Sidney Prescott. And also Heather Graham. And also Heather Graham as as Casey, which is wonderful, and Luke Wilson as uh, <laughs> as Billy for whatever reason. No, Luke Wilson feels more like he should be Dewey. Yeah, that feels more like the correct fit. I but agree. That's neither here nor there. Um, a thing that I proposed to you that I don't know if you'd ever thought about because you were pretty shocked when I said it is: is the Stab franchise the first of what we would see as like? the tasteless adaptations of real-life murders that we have now. Okay. The numerous true crime adaptations that get people Emmys. <laughs> right. So I was thinking about it. And obviously, like, we have always been making movies about, like, actual crimes or actual historical events. Like, that has always happened. But again, like, thinking about the way that people consume true crime media now, the Stab films feel very much like within two years yeah. of this happening of people actually murdering they're like what if we make a kitschy slasher out of this right like this isn't like, like a this isn't series. bonnie and clyde which was 40 <laughs> right. years ago and like it's also not a true crime doc like this isn't a dramatization this isn't like a drama it is a slasher movie they turned real life murders into a slasher film dude if someone did that today could you imagine the think pieces dude what if the girl next door, the scary one, not the sexy one. What if that was made like a year after it happened? It would be ridiculous. People would be rioting. It's in such bad taste. Right. <laughs> like, I think that's a thing that always gets left out when we talk about the stab movies is how just like, canonically speaking, 
how fucking awful that is. Yeah. <laughs> how exploitive that is. Um, so, yes, the stab movies are being made. And, like, obviously, Sydney and Randy know about it. And Sydney's like, you know, out of sight, out of mind. I'm not dealing with it. But then something happens. This is our cold open, which is not in a house. But it is still people watching a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith is the star of this. And I have seen this opening probably 10 million times. I mean, you've got the full theater. Everybody is getting gifted ghost face masks. They're having a great time. It's weird that it's a rowdy screening and an opening night at the same time. It's like a sneak peek. Movie's not even out yet. And it is the most, like, you can't hear the movie rowdy screaming I've ever seen. Yeah, it's like people watching RRR for the 50th time, but this is the first time. Yeah. Um, So it's really... It's really intense, and she obviously is just kind of not having it. There's plenty of, like, great, like, iconic moments of, like, the ghost face at the urinal. Like, all that stuff is great. But the thing about this opening that I think people forget is this opening is horrifying. hmm And what's doubly frustrating is there was a thing going around, like, a Twitter prompt the other day that was, like, what character was so annoying you couldn't wait for them to die? And somebody cited Jada's character oh, the in OP this movie. cited it. Yeah, and, and it everyone was like, was like, the fuck is like, wrong with you? Either you hate Jada specifically, or maybe you're just being racist. Maybe you're racist. I don't know. Like, Or or you're just one of those people who's like, ugh, I can't stand people who don't get horror movies. Either way, there's no good look for citing this. Because no. she's perfectly fine. Um, there's nothing wrong with her character. I think she's very believable. Um, what makes this feel so horrifying? Because like she's there with uh, her her date Phil, mm-hmm. and he's he gets off in the bathroom by a very very accurate stab through a metal door in the ear. You know, very like just blind stab straight through bullseye. Yeah, it makes me think about Sleepaway Camp where she stabs Meg in the back, which like that makes sense. You at least have like a bigger canvas when it's her back. Yeah. But it's like, how strong was that fucking knife? Yeah. And how weak are these doors? Yeah, it's it's really strange. But he gets killed and then the killer puts on his clothes and the ghost face mask and comes back into the theater. And what made the opening of the first movie so scary, um, aside from just the everything, is that like... She's on the phone with her mom as she slowly dies. So she's like, she's right there. You're not safe in your home. You're not safe on the phone. You're not safe around your parents. There's nowhere safe. This isn't a room full of people. Mm -hmm. Someone got murdered in front of like 300 people and they did nothing and didn't see it coming at all. Which means like you're never safe. At any point in this movie, you are never safe. Yeah, the the thing that gets me about this is so, you know, Phil dies. Also, that's Omar Epps, who is in plenty of things. Um, but he dies, and we have Jada's character, who rightfully critiques the horror genre. Like, she has her speech about how black people always die first. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a massive line that will then get referenced and parodied and what have you for movies until the end of time. Mm-hmm. I've um, seen Canadian Bacon. Um, but you know so she rightfully doesn't really like these movies she also finds them kind of gross and as much as I love horror movies why are the titties out right why is she taking a shower and as we know because we saw the real events of the Woodsboro murders that's not how Casey Becker dies but it's titillating but it's titillating which again makes the stab movies feel even more exploitive because this is based on a dead person this is based on a real person and you're having her be naked and that's so shitty Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so I like I'm on her side like her being like this feels fucked up you're right it is fucked up Uh Um, but the thing that gets me is so she ends up 
getting stabbed and she gets to the front of the theater and like the movie's being projected on her. I have such like a weird sense of love of any image of somebody having a movie projected onto them. I love that visual always. Yeah. But the look on her face when she has blood dripping from her mouth and she looks at the audience and realizes none of these motherfuckers are going to help me. It is so hard like not to get like emotional because like I get emotional when I watch when I watch Casey Becker die, mm-hmm. especially when she calls for her mom on the phone. Like I just breaks me on in a way that I can't describe. This one also does that for me because Jada is so magnetic to watch, and I've always loved her as an actress. But it's the look she gives the audience of like I can't believe you people. Like this is not part of the show. I'm fucking dying, and none of you are going to help me. And her having to accept that she's going to die in front of them without help, like without any assistance or help at all. Oh my God. Like it's so devastating. And I'm like getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. And I can look at it like systematically and functionally like, like a, like a surgeon Mm -hmm. and go, yeah, no, it's, it's really good. It's really effective. Mm -hmm. I do not feel it the way you do. (laughs) No, because Because of scary fucking movie. Because of the goddamn Wayans brothers. (laughs) I hate scary movies. I should be studying. You know I got a bio. Baby, did I mention that these tickets are free? Free. Sandra Bullock is playing right down the street. Nobody want to pay seven fifty to see some Sandra Bullock shit. That she naked. Oh, but you will sit through a movie called Stab. It's adrenaline marine. Mm-hmm. It's good to be scared. It's primal. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to tell you what it is, okay? What? It's a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls <laughs> getting their white asses cut the fuck up, okay? Yeah, I suppose Sandra Bullock is Miss Ethnicity, right? Well, no, all I'm saying is that the horror genre is historical for excluding the African-American element. Well, how you get your PhD in black cinema, Sister Soldier? Listen, I read my entertainment weekly, okay? I know my shit. So, obviously, this, like, terrible event happens and again because 1997 is a different time we hadn't had like a string of movie theater shootings or anything yet so mm-hmm. it's really scary to think about not being safe in a movie theater because i know for a lot of us that's like a sanctuary like i you, used, you don't poop at movie theaters. i don't poop at movie theaters because I, I feel like it's pooping at church and i don't like that i pooped at church i don't i don't, I don't know it feels I, weird i worked at a, at a at a church as a janitor so i'd be there by myself at like 9 30 10 o'clock at night once a week mm-hmm. and i would just ran around naked to say that i did it <laughs> why have i never heard this story uh i don't know it never came up <laughs> i also play the piano a lot um i played the organ once but it turns out that you can very clearly hear that outside and uh neighboring houses did not like hearing phantom of the opera at 10 30 on a sunday <laughs> i guess or more more directly, they didn't. They probably didn't appreciate me trying to figure out how to play it for thirty <laughs> minutes before getting the riff down. That was probably the really hard part. <laughs> oh, that's really funny though. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, we have this like absolutely harrowing opening sequence, and Sydney finds out about it on the news, and immediately she's like, "This is fucked up," but is trying to remain kind of calm. It's a coincidence. People are crazy. You know, let's let's not get into it. But then it very clearly starts to become an issue because things start to happen closer to campus. Mm-hmm. Um, but before things get closer in campus, I really want to talk about Randy's film class. Oh, oh, that shit is annoying as hell. 
no disrespect to Kevin Williamson, but that is written by somebody who makes movies where Randy's sitting there being like, actually, I have a one-up for everything you say, and I quoted aliens correctly, and people laughed because they thought it was funny. So what's so <laughs> funny is that I have always had beef with Randy. I talk about oh, it on the I first episode. The I worst. hate Randy. Um, my hatred for Randy has only gotten worse as I've gotten older because people like Randy have gotten worse. So this scene, which I know damn well in like 1997, everybody was watching this like, hell yeah, that's me. That speaks to me. Everyone I also, loves it when I do silly voices and quote movies. Right, because that kind of character hadn't become the fucking thorn of my existence yet. Yeah, because you've they, been working in horror and film for a long time. Right. You've, been, you've encountered a lot of Randys. Yes. So before like the era we're in now, people like Randy, like they were the cool guy at the video store that you wanted to get recommendations from. He was the one guy who knew everything about movies, like very much like the Kevin Smith kind of guy. But like now people like Randy, I want to fucking punch in the face. Okay, like the but... fact that Sarah Michelle Gellar does not punch him in the fucking face in this movie, that's also a crime. But like it's it, it's a it's a it's pen fifteen with Anna's boyfriend of Steve. And oh he's, yeah. He's like a freshman in high school, and he's just like, no, you don't understand. Like James Cameron or Quentin Tarantino is like a cinematic genius. So like, is Randy? Does he love films? Yeah. Does he understand films? Yeah. I think he's got really surface entry knowledge of films. <laughs> like he likes the blockbuster big things, but then it's going to dunk on Terminator 2. How dare anyone dunk on T2? T2 yeah. fucking rules. If it weren't for things like T2, I would be like, no, nah, James Cameron, I got no use for you. See, see, I have a lot of use for James Cameron. I stopped paying attention to his films. Small tangent, just because we're talking about James Cameron, and I have no idea when I'm ever going to be able to share this story. Uh, but I recently learned that at the Oscars where James Cameron won for Titanic, he threatened to beat the shit out of Harvey Weinstein with his Oscar yeah. because Harvey Weinstein treated Guillermo del Toro badly. That is the greatest thing I've ever heard. And I need somebody to make like an alternate history of that where James Cameron actually bludgeons Harvey Weinstein to death with an Oscar because I just need that visual in my life. I like Cam I like Cameron's moves. I like what he does through the environment. I like that. I don't want to watch his big expensive movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. So yeah, we have this like this film class, which I do think is a really smart vehicle for Randy to be able to have his like, here's the rules of a sequel because well, yeah, you, you need to set up a place for it. In the last one, it was he did it in a video store or, or while they're watching Halloween. Exactly. You need to have a circumstance where it feels naturally brought up. Otherwise, he is talking at people more than he already is. Right. So I think that this is really, really smart. Um, I think it's a great vehicle. I love that Joshua Jackson is just here to randomly be a yes man. Like, all right, cool. Hi, Joshua Jackson. Nice mm -hmm. to see you. But I love, love that CC Sarah Michelle Gellar's character is somebody who is unafraid of like pushing back at him. I feel like she's kind of the the godmother of what we will later get with Kirby and then later get with um Mindy in the current screen movies where you do have these women who also really like genre film mm -hmm. and who are not afraid to be like I actually don't like what you have to say Randy. I don't think that you're a genius. I love that shit. I think that's great. Yeah. No, I I agree. Um I, I'm not upset when Randy dies. I'm really not. Okay, so we're going to kind of jump around a little bit. Let's just I keep talking about Randy. Let's get him I out of the care. way. I don't care. We'll get him out of the way. Yeah. I also kind of don't care that Randy dies because I don't like his character and it's cool with me that he goes. The one thing I will say, and it's something that I, maybe this is a sign of me maturing, maybe I'm becoming an adult here. I do kind of feel bad for him when he dies. Yeah. If only because when he's on the phone with Ghostface, Ghostface is telling him, like, 
basically you're a fucking loser and no one likes you and you're gonna die alone mm-hmm. and then he does die alone that's just mean you're well, just yeah. kicking him while he's because down you, it's because he one-upped timothy oliphant in film studies mm-hmm. so he needs to be like actually no everyone hates you i know <laughs> so he's just gonna go for the jugular and it's clearly very effective because it rustles his feathers quite a bit mm-hmm. um i don't know i'd say randy's death is the most substantial one in this movie for me mm-hmm. because i mean he's the he's the legacy character that dies exactly and as I said earlier, I don't think that the new characters are as fleshed out as I would like them to be. So their deaths don't mean more other than what it means for Cindy. It's like, oh, no, her roommate died. Oh, no, her boyfriend died. Mm-hmm. Who are you outside of the boyfriend and the roommate? Mm-hmm. So it's it, it that's probably a symptom of the rewrites that mm-hmm. me looking at this scientifically rather than through my feelings notices more than I probably should. Mm-hmm. But Randy dying does... Do two things. One, um, his whole spiel with David Arquette setting up what a sequel is and how a copycat works. That is our commentary on the horror sequel. And that's sort of where that ends with this movie because I think it becomes more of a larger story about the violence in films and copycats and more of like a systemic look at horror films rather mm-hmm. than just horror sequels. And I think that stuff's more compelling than the, the sequel stuff, mm-hmm. which... Sorry, Randy, that's just another point against you. It's not your fault in this case. Um, <laughs> but also it does set up that like, hey, nobody is safe again. Mm-hmm. This movie does a good job of making it seem like nobody is safe. Mm-hmm. Like we know better. Mm-hmm. We, know, we, we know the core three are going to pull through this. But it seems like they might not. Right. Like when Randy goes, it does kind of feel like, oh, all bets are off on this, mm-hmm. which I, I do find really compelling and really, really interesting. But, you know, Randy's death does come after Cece's death. And Cece is the the link that lets us know that this is 100% a copycat killer because Cece is short for Casey. So she's named after Casey Becker. We learn that the couple in the movie theater are named Maureen and Steve. So that becomes Maureen Prescott. And then Steve, Casey's boyfriend who gets gutted like a fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the trend that we're following here. But we do get Gail back in action. Uh, We get Dewey back because obviously this is so clearly connected to all of what they experienced and what they went through. Mm -hmm. Um, We're starting to get a little bit of glimpses of how hard it has been for all of them since this happened, Um, how things have affected them. We also get more of Cotton Weary because he's out of prison now because clearly he did not do it. Yeah. Um, And his relationship with Sydney is also really weird and interesting um he's obsessed with being on tv and becoming famous he's trying to profit off of the fact that he was accused of murder i mean we just like i get get your bag i guess but also i mean it's also about clearing his name yeah that's true because everyone believes what they believe that's very true oh you got convicted of it you went to jail that means you did it even if you didn't do it right right so like i kind of get where he's coming from even I if do I, too. even if i think cotton's a jerk his obsession with wanting to be on diane sawyer is Really, really funny. Also, I resisted really hard from being like Diane Sawyer because uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous lives in my bones. Yes. Um, but, you know, he has a, a weird relationship with Sydney. She obviously has a weird relationship with him because she was convinced she was right and she wasn't. And he went away for a year for something he didn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, you know, so I get why he's angry with her. I do. Yeah. <laughs> but she is processing what happened to her. In a way that I think is really important to see. Well, yeah. I mean, this is where we start to see where she's going to go for the rest of her career, which is 
grieving and preparation and continuing to deal with the trauma of things that happened when she was like 17. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when we first see her, somebody is calling her and talking like Ghostface and she's completely just whatever about yeah. it uh, because she has caller ID now. Yeah. Um, it's also just an empty threat. It's an empty threat because she's used to people pranking her mm-hmm. and she's just like whatever about it. But you can tell... Just a little bit gets under her skin. Like, a well, little bit. It's annoying. You mm-hmm. woke her up. <laughs> right. She's got shit to do today. Eh. So avoiding the risk of just kind of going beat by beat in this movie, because I think that that would just be dumb. Um, this movie's really good at setting up red herrings, introducing characters that could be the killer, but they're not the killer because either they die or they just can't be for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to talk about the characters that kind of start popping up. Uh, So the first one is Derek, um, her new boyfriend played by Jerry Uh O'Connell in the goofiest role. (laughs) Um, He gets to sing and dance. Dear God. Derek is a character that I love hate very deeply. Mm -hmm. So the reason that I hate him is because I think he's corny as hell. And I think Sydney deserves better than this cornball. I think he's boring. Uh, There's just really not a lot to him. I like, I Get that I'm supposed to like. He's him a because, nice guy. Yeah, he's fine. He's There's a nice wrong guy because he didn't become a killer, and that's pretty much like, oh, Sydney, <laughs> you let a fucking nice guy die. Right. It's so like, like he could have been an asshole. I don't know. <laughs> right. So there, there's not enough about him for me to like really get invested in him. But like, if Sydney sees something with him, even if it's just a sense of safety, it's a college boyfriend. He's yeah. good enough for now. He's good enough. He's for Mr. Now. Right now. He does get one thing though that I really like. And it is his his corniest moment, which is that when people start dying, Sydney is like, hey, you need to stay away from me because anybody who gets close to me is in danger. And so you should not associate with me. We should not be seen together. We should not do whatever together because that's going to put you at risk. And because Derek is trying to show Sydney that like, nope, we're in this together, baby, he makes a giant public display of affection by singing, I think I love you, off key standing on tables looking like a big dork not not to name any names but this is how you have a corny cheesy song and dance number in a slasher movie made by a gay man and make it not awful <laughs> just that, saying that was uh that was some shade very specific shade for a movie i really fucking hate <laughs> that was uh some some gender neutral shade there but like look it's so easy <laughs> to be like okay no but it's corny like that's right. the point it's let it be corny be. he can't let it be sing, corny. he can't dance everyone is apparently enthralled by him because i guess he's a cool enough guy at school he can get away with doing cheesy shit like this mm-hmm. but like i don't know he he's making a spectacle saying like look i'm with you so now i have a target on my back so we're in this together right easy peasy which i love i think that's it, wonderful it, it has a character point other than to cheer someone up exactly which means it is not filler it's not just a nice sentiment it's intrinsic to the plot i do think that it is also very emblematic of dumbass like late teen young adult nonsense oh yeah of like big romantic gesture big romantic gesture also like not really thinking this through it's like come on dude what are you what are you doing Mm -hmm. um but i like that about him and so he he earns points for me for doing that um so one of the other characters that becomes this you know is it this person but at the same time, never feels like that person is Elise Neal as Hallie McDaniel. Um, that is Sydney's roommate. 
Um, she never, to me, feels like a possibility of being the killer ever. Well, yeah, she's not in enough of the movie. They really don't do a lot with her. I wish they did more. Um, I think with the, with the exception of them getting in the police car and then having to get out of the police car, resulting in her death at the end, I don't know. How much screen time does she have in this movie? So, and they also don't give her nearly as much to do as other kind of like, you know, side characters like a Tatum. Mm-hmm. I know who Tatum is. Tatum has a big personality that's impossible to ignore. Hallie's just kind of the friend. Her character to me has always felt like the characters that Cassie Lemons would play in Candyman and Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. where it's like our lead is this white girl that everybody's going to love immediately. And then the voice of reason and her friend who may or may not die uh, in order for her to survive is like her black friend. Mm-hmm. That's kind of who this character feels like to me. Yeah. And it's a bummer because I do think that she had potential to be really cool because she is a great friend. I'm I'm going to blame rewrites on it and not bad writing on no, Kevin Williams's y- part. I agree. But completely. I want more for this character. I want more for all of these characters. I agree. I want Timothy Oliphant to not disappear for a full hour of the movie before coming back because it feels like, hey, you forgot about him, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, Timothy Oliphant as Mickey is like such an interesting character to me, but he does kind of disappear for quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, as I guess we, he's off just doing killing things. He's just doing ghost face but shit, I guess. But it just feels like the movie forgets him because they want you to forget he's a possibility because they want you to focus on all of the red herrings. Agreed. And I get that, but I don't love that. That is so moral majority. You can't blame real life violence on entertainment. What? <laughs> Wait a second, yes you can. Don't, don't you even watch the news? Yeah, hello, the murderer was wearing a ghost mask, okay? Just like in the movie, it's directly responsible. No, it's not. Movies are not responsible for our actions. It's a classic case of life imitating art, imitating this life. This is not a hypothetical. It's not about art. I had biology with that girl. This is reality. Thank you. I agree with you. Let me tell you about reality, Mickey. I live through this, okay? Life is life. It doesn't imitate anything. Come on, Randy. With all due respect, the killer obviously patterned himself after two serial killers who have been immortalized on film. Thank you, right. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? Stab 2? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. No, wow. My favorite of the red herrings, um, and they go viral all the time, is Rebecca Gayhart as Lois and Portia de Rossi as Murphy, oh. uh, where we have a lesbian and a gay icon together. Ugh, match made in heaven. I, 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 love, I love them. I, my curly hair queens, always <laughs> a fan to see them. Uh, Portia's eyebrows are intense. Portia's eyebrows they, are always intense. They are somehow <laughs> stealing the scene in every scene they're in because they are just so dark. <laughs> I love both of their characters. And whenever like a tweet goes viral, that's like, I wish they would have been ghost faces or why don't we have a spinoff about them? I agree. I love them. I would have loved to see, like, the two of them as Ghostface killers. Hilarious. I think they would have honestly been a... I don't know if it would have been a better result. It would depend on how you got there. But I feel like if you're going to have Timothy Oliphant and then not use him as much as I want you to use him, Mm -hmm. I would like them as the alternative. Mm -hmm. Those are my understudies for Ghostface. Yes. I I love them so much. Um, And then our other, like, kind of red herring, but isn't a red herring because she's actually Ghostface, Mm -hmm. fucking Lori Metcalf. Aunt Jackie herself as Debbie Salt slash Nancy Loomis. I'm obsessed with her character. I love her much more than I love Timothy Oliphant. 
Because Timothy Oliphant to me just feels like he wasn't. He's a retread. Yeah, he wasn't utilized as much. He definitely feels like Billy. Billy. So it makes sense. That's the point. He's copying Billy. It makes sense to me why he would then go with Debbie Salt slash Nancy Loomis. I like Debbie Salt better. I think it's a cooler name. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes sense because she's like, oh, I see my son in you. And then also she has her own vendetta and her own thing because her son is dead. I'll always kill the other person. Oh, my God. She is so incredible because until we know the truth about her and the fact that like <laughs> her eyes like bug out of her head mm-hmm. when she's pointing the gun at Sydney, which is just so good. Um, but before we know that about her, she's just like a really annoying pest to Gail and anybody whose purpose is to just piss off Gail. I love because my favorite Gail is sassy and pissed Gail. I mean, she's, she's just like this local putz kind of. Mm-hmm. I specifically like that she pisses off Gail throughout this movie because Gail is possibly her most annoying and insufferable in this movie this before is, turning the corner at the end. Yeah, this Scream 2 is, to me, this is the evolution of Gail into going from this figure that was, you know, kind of an antagonist in the first movie but obviously wasn't a killer to a character in this movie who now she has, like, this newfound confidence because, like, she had this best-selling she won. book. She succeeded. She won. She got a movie deal out of it. She feels too hot to trot. And this movie kind of humbles her a bit where it's like, nah, bitch, you are still, mm-hmm. you know, in danger. You need to, like, get it together. And then she becomes an ally to Sydney by the end of it. And I... I think that I love that journey for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going on. And then obviously Dewey is never a suspect ever. No, um. <laughs> Dewey is arguably the outside of Sydney. Obviously he's the one who seems like the least possible suspect mm-hmm. because he has nerve damage. Yeah. Which means that unless it's like the end of scary movie and it's the usual suspects where he's faking it, he's not a contender for this. Right. So Dewey is like the emotional heart and center of this movie. Cause not only is he looking out for Sydney, like, mm-hmm. you know, a good, a good older brother type. But he also softens Gale. Yes. And he's like running headfirst into things to try and solve crimes that campus police aren't. Mm-hmm. That, that his dad is not doing. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that too. Like, all slasher movies kind of operate under the same belief system of cops ain't shit, which I will forever love. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie does a very good job at it as well, because yes, David Arquette's dad, um, Louis Arquette, is in charge of like the the local police. And anybody who has lived on campus or lived in a college town knows that there is this weird like hostility between like campus police versus like the city and town police. Mm-hmm. Like nobody ever wants to help each other and everybody's just kind of like being annoying all the time. Yeah, it's just like jurisdiction. Yeah, it's four. all bullshit. It's all paperwork nonsense that no one actually gives a shit about. Yeah. Just like if people need help, just fucking help them. What's wrong with you? You say that like the police do that. They don't do that. No. And they also legally don't have to. No, they, um, they don't to put themselves in danger. <laughs> the goddamn worst. Dude, he is putting himself in danger. <laughs> like, like he, actively. He gets beat the shit. He gets fucked up in the first movie. He gets fucked up more in this one. Like, we should straight up just start going to Congress and just start playing clips of horror movies and be like, see? Abolition. Thank you. Bye. Let's go watch Urban Legend. I love Urban Legend. There we go. That's that's how your police should be <laughs> handling of things. Speaking Rebecca Gayhart, I yeah. love Urban Legend. And Joshua Jackson. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I I love Dewey. I think he is the, he is truly the only good one outside of Sydney in this one mm-hmm. because he's the only one you can't doubt. Yes. But I, I love the point that you brought up that, you know, he he does sort of morph both Sydney and Gail. And I, I 
love him. I love the character of Dewey. I hate that it like ruined David Arquette's career for a hot minute of time because people misremember it as the character. As Doofy? As Doofy from Scary Movie. And that's very annoying. Yep. Because well, Dewey well, is so much more capable than people give him credit for. It's true. Um, it's, I want nothing but the best for David Arquette. Um, I cared so much Far more than any other moment in Scream 5 because of David Arquette. Mm-hmm. So I just, I think he's wonderful and I hope he's having a lovely day. Yeah, same. I, every day I hope David Arquette is having a good day. Yes. <laughs> um, so something that I think Scream 2 also does really, really well is there are some very tense set pieces in this movie. Um, the first one that I want to point out is one we kind of mentioned in passing, which is the car scene. So... Sydney and her roommate end up in the back of a police cruiser and Ghostface is there and kills the cop and then Ghostface is driving a car. Oh, they, they kill the shit out of that gay cop. They bury that gay. They bury that gay cop. Um, yep. <laughs> but I do like that they do acknowledge that he might be gay and everyone's like, all right. Don't ask, don't tell. The don't ask, don't tell joke. <laughs> I see you. That's hilarious. But yeah, they, they kill the fuck out of that cop. And then what happens is Ghostface is kind of like knocked out, but because they're in a cop car, they can't go out the back doors because you can't go out the back doors. Mm-hmm. So they, they basically have child locks. Yeah, they pull <laughs> down the the separation grate and then Sydney gets out of the car and it is very tense because she has to climb over Ghostface. And then her roommate has to do the same. Like it is a very, very tense scene. And then what like kills me is that you have the the logical black character in a horror movie, the same character that, you know, we're talking about at the beginning when Jada Pickett Smith is being critical of horror, where she's like, how about we don't go back, Sydney? That sounds dumb. No, Let's like, get the fuck out of here. I'm also mad at Sydney in this interaction, not because it's like, oh, I want to see his face. It's like, no, you should go back and kill him. And granted, Sydney will get there. She'll be Sydney fucking Prescott in later mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. But like... No, like when you're you could you could have straddled him in that cop car and choked him while you he was unconscious. Shoved your like, thumbs in his eyes. <laughs> you could have killed him so easily and you didn't. And mm-hmm. then you had to go back just because, oh, I need to know. Because you need to know. You need to know. And then your roommate dies. And yep. it, because of, of course, because he two slipped out space. somehow when they weren't paying attention and then went around the back and then popped out on the left side. Yes. So I don't need it. It's fine. Sydney <laughs> should have killed him. I know, <laughs> but she she's not there yet. She's not there. She hasn't she hasn't gotten that rage filled yet. No, she'll get there from three onward. Yes. So you know, th- but that scene I think is really fantastic. The other one that I love, which I'm glad you jokingly mentioned Urban Legend earlier, because we will also see a this similar exact kind of thing, a similar thing in Urban Legend, but is in the college radio station with Gail and Dewey running around from Ghostface. Some of the rooms are soundproof so they can't hear each other. You get that great shot of Dewey like getting pressed up against the glass and, and just, just spit blood. blood. Oh, it's so good. But the tension of like the stealth sort of escape of Gale like sneaking around pillars and corners and shelves is so fucking good and so stressful and really, really well shot. Like mm-hmm. it feels so claustrophobic, but at the same time it feels like she's in this huge maze. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. It, like, Dewey presumably dies. He doesn't, but we think he's dead. Mm-hmm. We also think well, Gail dies during the climax, but she's not dead either. But after she escapes, Cotton comes out of just nowhere, and he's covered in Dewey's blood. He's like, I tried to help him. And he looks like a goddamn giant next to <laughs> normal size Courtney Cox. And then we Googled it, and it's like, 
oh, that's basically how we look. Yeah. Courtney Cox is an inch taller than I am, and Liev Schreiber is the same height that you are. So it's like, fuck, so that's we were, what we look like. All right. <laughs> yeah, we were watching this scene because I was like, damn, Courtney Cox just gets dwarfed by him. And then it's like, oh, wait, that's what we look like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> just with, you know, less blood. Um, but yeah. Usually. He, Con Weary looks so scary, though, when he comes out. Because, yeah, he is huge, but he's got his hands out, and his hands are also huge, and he's just covered in blood, and he's also been stressed out because of everything going on. So, like, he's a little pale, and he looks a little kind of sickly. I mean, we've already been given reasons to doubt him because he's got some anger issues, like when he uh, corners Sydney in the library mm -hmm. after they're on the computers, and he's just, like, slowly backing her down a hallway by just getting closer and more intense. Yeah. So we already know he's a little, he's, he's, he's a little pent up. Yeah, a, a little bit. A little, just a touch. But I'm glad you brought up the library because this movie also has like a, a wonderful trope that we will see way more of as the computers kind of become more of a thing, mm -hmm. which is like being in a room of computers and someone messages you and you have no idea where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that it is like this very kind of archaic 1997 looking computer because it is so much scarier when it comes from like just big black box of like, I see you, everything's in caps, everything looks the same. Oh, technologically with like the black and green it's it looks like playing a game boy yeah like it's that archaic looking but it's like oh no that's 1997 that makes mm -hmm. sense it makes but total sense it just looking back on it now it's like oh god <laughs> <laughs> it was the stone age <laughs> yeah uh but I do, I do like that scene but yeah he uh he does have some anger issues but yeah those are the two like set pieces that i really like as far as tension there's one other set piece in this movie that is not about tension that I also want to talk about, though. It's about though. theater. It's about theater. The grandeur of the stage. <laughs> so because Kevin Williamson loves me and wants me to be happy, um, that's just how I am choosing to believe it. There is a scene in Scream 2 where Sydney is rehearsing for a play, and she is playing Cassandra. Full disclosure, I say Cassandra because I'm from Chicago, and yeah. I know that that's not right. Um, so don't judge me when I say it a million times. Um, but there was a piece written in Fangoria by Jessica Scott uh, earlier this month called Cassandra's Curse, Unheeded Warnings, and Scream 2 in Black Christmas. And this piece is fantastic because it's basically talking about how Cassandra, who is this figure in Greek mythology um, who was a seer, and tried to warn people about like upcoming danger, but nobody listened to her because they all thought she was like crazy and hysterical. How that has become something that we are still all dealing with today, mm -hmm. uh, where women try to say like, I feel scared or something is wrong or something is bad. And everyone's like, you're being emotional or you don't know what you're talking about. And mm -hmm. they completely dismiss what women are saying. And it's something that obviously, like, you've always known. Like, we know that there are systemic issues with women being believed. But when it's put in this sort of context where it's like, oh, yeah, it's Cassandra, Greek mythology, all the way down here. Like, that is, like, inherited from all of us. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah that makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. But in this article, uh, Jessica says a similar scene plays out in Scream 2. Just moments after Sydney receives a threatening message from the killer... Cotton Weary appears and physically menaces her in an attempt to get her to interview with him and Diane Sawyer so he can elevate his own profile and bank account. He corners her, using his imposing size to intimidate regardless of what she wants. This is the library scene. Mm -hmm. An even more troubling moment occurs in a blink-and-you'll-miss-it line of dialogue from Gail when Randy tells Dewey that Gail has been a smoker ever since those nude pictures on the internet. 
Gail clarifies, it was just my head. It was Jennifer Aniston's body, which also- Deep fakes. <laughs> well, one, yeah, like the terror of like fucking deep fake porn existing. But also this does sort of imply in the Scream universe that Gail just happens to really look a lot like Courtney Cox. <laughs> yeah. And also that Jennifer Aniston has nudes out there, I guess. Apparently, it's it's really weird. But no, that was absolutely a thing I remember people would share on the internet um, just casually. It's just they Photoshop a person's face that they like onto a body they like. And they're like, oh my God, look, it's real. And I go, dude, no. Yeah, and it was always- like, Either you did that and you're bad at Photoshop or you found that and you're an idiot. Yeah, it there was- that was such a weird time. The stuff people just were convinced was real and it was so clearly bad Photoshop. Mm-hmm. But Gail's victimization is hardly a joke, especially with AI and revenge porn becoming bigger and bigger problems in the technological realm of sexual assault. Even when Ghostface isn't chasing her around Woodsboro with a knife, Gail's bodily autonomy is still under attack. And like, again, that goes into this, like, this movie makes you feel like you are not safe anywhere. Well, no one's safe on the internet, especially if you're a woman. Exactly. Um, And Scott goes on to say, the same fate befalls Cece, a sober sister left alone in her sorority house during a big party in Scream 2. This is one of the clearest homages to Black Christmas from Craven and writer Kevin Williamson. Mm -hmm. Both feature a terrifying chase through a sorority house with voyeuristic POV shots and creepy phone calls from a killer already in the house. Mm -hmm. Ghostface even reminds Cece, don't forget to set an alarm, which echoes what sorority sister Donnie tells her just before she leaves the house. It's a clear callback to Billy from Black Christmas repeating Peter's bitter words about just treating her abortion like having a wart removed. The CC slash Ghostface chase even culminates in the attic, which is Billy's domain in Black Christmas. Throughout this frightening sequence, CeCe's sorority sister laughs at her on the phone and campus security hangs up on her repeatedly. The phone is not her salvation, but her doom, because the only person who believes she's telling the truth is the person who will end up murdering her. And... I think that that is just really interesting to think about how often there is this theme throughout this movie and then continuing movies and slasher movies in general, just the idea of women not being believed and like Mm -hmm. women saying with their whole chest, like something is wrong, something is happening and everyone just being like, no. And then when things are really, really bad, it's like, well, why didn't anyone warn us? Why didn't anyone say anything? And it's I like, mean, we fucking did. Let's, let's tie this into real life and Columbine and all that by dusting off that Onion article about like, how could this have happened in the only country where this happens regularly? Right. Where it's just like, oh, no, that applies to a million situations outside of just shootings. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and to kind of like wrap things up from this Fangoria piece, The biggest twist in Scream 2 is that one of the killers is also a woman, but Mrs. Loomis being Ghostface doesn't make her crimes any less misogynistic. She blames Sydney for killing Billy. She blames Sydney's mother for turning Billy into a killer in the first place. Violence against women is never a man's fault, in Mrs. Loomis's opinion. It's always a woman's fault, especially if a woman's sexuality is involved. It's important to note that her son shares a name with the killer in Black Christmas, which Scream 2 directly references in its opening and closing moments. Just as Billy addresses and impersonates his mother on the phone, Ghostface whispers to his mommy in an eerily Billy-like voice to lure Phil into getting stabbed in the bathroom. The maternal focus is significant, given Mrs. Loomis's relationship to Scream's Billy, Jess's adamant refusal to have a baby with Peter, and the looming presence of Maureen Prescott over the woman-blaming motives of various Ghostface killers. Mm-hmm. And I love that so much because... It, when when Debbie Salt finally does like confront Sydney and she starts talking, it is so wild 
how she just doesn't understand that her son is the problem or that her husband is the problem. Well, it means that she's partially the problem, right? Do you blame the parents, right? Like, that's part of the trickle down of what you have of, like, who to blame for these kids who grow up and do bad things. It's like, oh, it's it's the violent video games. It's the violent movie. It's the parents. Where Where was the parents? It's like another feather in the cap of what this film is doing in its relation to violence and horror. Mm-hmm. And what I also find really interesting is that, again, because this is pre-Columbine, we don't yet have figures like Sue Klebold. Um, for those that don't know, Sue Klebold is the mother of one of the Columbine shooters. Mm-hmm. And she has since dedicated her entire life um, to advocating for you know this to never happen again. Um, also with like social-emotional learning so that kids who have big emotions and dangerous emotions can learn to regulate them so that we can kind of treat the cause and not just the symptoms, Mm -hmm. which I find really... Do do something before it becomes a problem. Yeah. Um, And what I also find really interesting is that she is hyper aware of her place in this sort of story. Um, Whenever they do like documentaries on Columbine or anything that is coming from like survivors, she kind of lets them do it. And she's like, no, you don't need me involved in this. Like I should not be involved in this because she knows that even if she like anything she does, people could interpret as like, oh, you're trying to say that we should forgive your son. And she's like, that's not what I'm saying. Uh Um, But figures like that don't really exist yet. So it makes total sense that we would have a character like Debbie Salt or Nancy Loomis who would be wild as hell um, about this and like really vindictive because we haven't gotten to a place yet where we've seen that there's another option. Uh Um, Something else that I – this is an actual critique that I have of this movie. Okay. So – One of the big things that happens when we get the reveal that this is Mrs. Loomis, Sydney recognizes her immediately. Gail does not because Gail is like, Mrs. Loomis is a big lady. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, this is, you know, 60 pounds lighter and some facelift or whatever, whatever the actual line is. Sure. There is this nagging thought that I have in the back of my head that kind of makes it feel like the reason that her husband was stepping out on her was because she got fat. Um, and that's why she ended up like losing revenge weight basically. Mm. Um, and I've never like known how, how to sit with that where it <laughs> like, it obviously pains Billy's dad as being a shithead because fuck I mean, you. He was. Cause he was. Um, but also at the same time, it's like, oh, so this is also why she hates Sydney's mom so much is because not only did she, quote unquote, break up their marriage, which is not at all what happened, but she also doesn't like her because she was unhappy with herself. Mm-hmm. And I hate that narrative. Um, again, like it was 97. We weren't having like very nuanced discussions about like weight and no, no, but fat also, acceptance. Also, that is totally a stereotype of like straight marriages in particular, especially like really traditional conservative type marriages where it's like, oh yeah, um, you got to get thin to fit in your wedding dress. And then you have those pictures to cherish forever. And then you turn to you, the, the groom and it's like, ah, oh, Henry, get a, get a good look at her now. Cause she's never going to be this thin again. She's going to become your fat old lady at some point. Right. Like that is, that is such a prevalent thing or, or, or at least a, a fear within those kinds of relationships and circles. And there's also very much the stereotype of like the obese overprotective mother who can't 
see that there's something wrong with her son. Like that's also a trope. Um, and so it feels like it's kind of playing in that sandbox, but doesn't dive deep enough into it for me to like really critique it. Just the thing that every time I hear that line, I'm like, mm, that doesn't sit right with me. It just, it just feels touch a touch off. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel like it needs to be there. Like, I guess it's there because it's like, well, this is why Gail didn't recognize yeah. that that was her the whole time. I get that. I mean, it's more feasible than like, I took my face off or something else right. from the 90s. <laughs> So, I mean, it, it's, it's not the worst excuse you could bring up for why she would look different, I suppose. Um, but Scream does sit in, like, a unique relationship with reality that other franchises don't, where you have, you know, horror traditionally always being a reaction to something, either um, in response to a fear or an exploitation of a fear or commentary on whatever's happening socially like that. That's always been a thing. But Scream incorporates it so much more directly and vividly into the actual narrative because it's such a meta commentary on mm -hmm. society. Um, and, and a thing that I kind of want to bring up with that that I think I'm curious on your thoughts of is that for me, I, I, I approach these movies from like a slightly skewed perspective because I had my stuff muffed up mm -hmm. because I saw a comedy first. Mm -hmm. But there is something to be said about how much certain things about this movie are influenced by the external circumstances that we view things. Um, mm -hmm. Scream 5 came out, and I don't know how you felt about it. I was kind of fine. I liked it more than you did. I thought it was fine. Um, the big issue that I had with it, though, and this is kind of why I think Scream 2 sits weird for me, which is I didn't love Scream 5 because so much of what it felt like it was commenting on was stuff that I see in horror circles um, in, in, in common discussion daily, just exhausting discussions and dissections of horror that for mm -hmm. your average person sounds probably very fresh and unique. But for me, it's like, oh my God, I did not need you to put $40 million into a movie to tell me shit I can get on Twitter for free. It feels and that's like, not the movie's fault. No, it kind of feels like shitting where you eat. <laughs> yes. In, in a sense. Yes. Yeah. So I think... I think that's sort of where I feel a little bit about Scream 2 in general, which is I'm very exhausted by true crime. I'm very exhausted by all of this stuff, which is not the movie's fault. It was not as common at the time, mm -hmm. but I'm approaching it now as an adult, trying to now change feelings that were originally tied to a comedy, now looking at it like as a piece of art. Mm -hmm. As an adult, after all of this has already influenced my 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 things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this movie fits, sits weird, but in a completely opposite way. None of these are the film's faults, though. Right. So for me, whenever I look at Scream 2, the things that I take away from it are twofold. Is that one, this movie is so ahead of its time in the oh, things yeah, that it's commenting on because they only get exacerbated as time goes on, mm -hmm. um, which just makes the film to me more impressive because it's like you had enough foresight to take this very meta, like self-referential, immediate response film to the culture around us, but you also predicted very correctly you could see what, where we were headed. What, where we were headed. Yeah. And the reason I think that that happens and the reason I think that that works is specifically because Kevin Williamson is a gay man and marginalized people are always the people on the front lines first screaming, this is happening. This is bad. Oh, yeah. Please listen to us. Canary in the coal mine. It's we are like marginalized people are always the canary in the coal mine. And it takes for fucking ever for the cisgender, heterosexual, white dominant society to get on board. And 
it's fascinating to see that like Kevin Williamson wrote a roadmap basically of like mm-hmm. where we're heading and everyone just went it's a silly horror movie we don't have to fucking pay attention to that and now look where we are mm-hmm. <laughs> um and it, it's just it's unreal when you see like how much he got right immediately in 1990 fucking seven that we are still dealing with in 2023 mm-hmm No, I agree with all of that. It's very smart. And that's me knowing that and being able to see that with my brain. Right. But in terms of, like, enjoying the film as a film, in terms of processing it as an art, it feels weird. And that's fine. It can feel weird for you. These these are two different things that can be true at the same time. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. Like, it's just, it's really interesting to me because I think about what, like, the radio silence guys are doing with Scream 5 and 6, and it's like, any perfect world... They probably would be commenting on true crime and the way the stab movies fit into like the true crime sphere, but they almost kind of can't do that because it was already done in screen too. Yeah, and it, it would have been so much more fresh, I think, to do it now than then. Like that was commenting on like actual sensationalized depictions of like violence in the news and shit mm-hmm. like that. But now we just do it for sport. Yeah. People do it we for just fun. Do it, we do it as hobbies now. You can go on fucking TikTok right now and there are like 20 different women that are just going to do their makeup in the middle of telling you the most gruesome shit you've ever heard in your life. Where It's, it's so like, casual. Like today we're using the Trixie Mattel palette and there's this blue color. So anyway, Robert Johnson stabbed his wife in the eye with a butter knife because he wanted it to last longer. Isn't this a pretty shade? And it's like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. How is this the world we live in? But that's the world we live in. Yeah, I don't know. Just I guess that's that's our own unique dystopian that we're carrying over from last week's Hunger Games. I guess so. <laughs> God. You should really deal with your trust issues, Sid. I mean, poor Derek. He's completely innocent. He's such a nice boy, too. He's bright and funny and handsome. Decent singing voice. And he was going to be a doctor. This was just the kind of boy you'd like to take home to mom. If you had a mom. Fuck you! Oh! So vulgar! Did Billy let you talk to him this way? Billy was a sick fuck just like you. No. Billy was a sick fuck who tried to get away with it. Mickey is a sick fuck who wants to get caught. Yeah! See, I've got my whole defense planned out. I'm gonna blame the movies. It's pretty cool, huh? It hasn't been done before. You see this? It's just the beginning. A prelude to the trial. That's where the real fun is, because these days it's all about the trial. Can't you see it? The effects of cinema violence on society. I'll get Dershowitz or Cochran to represent me. Bob Dole on the witness stand in my defense. Hell, the Christian coalition will pay my legal fees. It's airtight, Sid. So to take things home, I think the the big takeaway that I also have from Scream 2 is kind of that last shot where we have Sydney and Gail standing next to each other looking down on Debbie Salt. Uh, they also pump Timothy Oliphant full of fucking lead. Oh, he like backflips? Oh my God. They destroy <laughs> him. Um, and, you know, Sydney gets Debbie right in the forehead, uh, mm-hmm. point blank, because she doesn't want her getting back up again. Um, but specifically the shot of the two of them looking down, and that's when you realize this is who this franchise is. Mm-hmm. Th- this franchise is not Ghostface, it's the survivors, I think is really powerful and really wonderful uh, just visual storytelling. Well, especially in comparison to most slasher franchises up to this point mm-hmm. where maybe like for the first entry you care about like the final girl but as it goes on it becomes less about like 
Friday the 13th and it becomes about Jason. Right. Because less about child's play, becomes more about Chucky. Right. Becomes, you know, Freddy's nightmares, which is its own thing of the personality, <laughs> but like it becomes the Leatherface movies, you know? Yes. It becomes less about the franchise and more about the monster. Right. And that just kind of, it, it, it perpetuates this idea of you show up to watch people get murdered, mm-hmm. which is like, but don't get me wrong, kills are fun, but kills are like maybe 10% of the movie. Mm-hmm. What's the rest of the movie got? Yeah. And this movie's got more than just kills. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think Scream generally has maybe one really big showcase kill in all of their movies. But for the most part, they're pretty understated. It's just like, oh, yeah, I stabbed you. Mm-hmm. And then we move on. I mean, in six, obviously, not spoiling anything, but, you know, higher body count, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but yeah, Scream movies compared to most slashes have a fairly low body count. I know, because th- some of these slashes, they go nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think as a sequel as well, because it's sequels month. I think this is a really good sequel, and I also think, I think that it's a smart sequel. It's a super smart sequel, and I think it sets so much groundwork for later films. Because if Scream One had been a standalone movie, I think everyone would have been fine with it, um, because it's a really fucking good movie. But Scream Two and the way that it kind of expands the world and the scope, it becomes very clear. Like, oh, these stories could happen forever like Mm -hmm. because there will always be a ghost face there will always be somebody that wants to be involved or to kill or whatever and the way that it has continued to evolve has proven that like this is i want you to remember my name and do a podcast on me and my atrocities yeah and i mean That, that services the ghost face character like that's that's what we start to see even in a more modern setting starting in scream 4 mm-hmm it's it's fascinating. And the way that it has constantly evolved and changed shape, I think, is really, really smart. And I think this is one of the rare slashers where it does keep going. Because, I mean, Halloween Ends happened last year. It ended. And Thank God. <laughs> like, it ended. But, like, that's how it has to end. It has to end with Michael and Laurie. Ghostface, as much as, yes, this is... Sydney Prescott, it absolutely is Sydney Prescott. We've gotten to a place now where Ghostface is bigger than Sydney. Oh, yeah. Um, that phenomenon is bigger than her, so she doesn't have to be there. It's better when she is, but she doesn't have to be. Okay, so this is really weird. Um, I say that I, I've referenced Star Wars throughout this entire month for no reason other than, I don't know, there's a lot of sequels, I guess. Um, and I don't. Even, I couldn't even tell you the last. I, whenever the last Star Wars movie came out was that four years ago. That's the last time I watched a Star Wars movie. I haven't touched any of that shit <laughs> since then. But it's the idea that people. Com- it's the thing that people complain about with Star Wars, where every fucking thing has to be tied to the Skywalkers at some point, and it makes the universe not feel narratively satisfying, but it makes it feel small. Especially in an internet age, in a social media age, stuff like that would spread so much more easily. And it would make the concept of Ghostface, who is never a singular entity, mm-hmm. it would make it feel bigger to have it expand outside of just stuff involving Sydney. Mm-hmm. It makes the world and the threat seem larger. Ghostface is a plague. Yeah. Like, he's contagious. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that to me is like, you know, you can say what you want about whether or not Nev Campbell should be in Scream 6 and... There's valid points on both sides. Everybody should have given her whatever money she wanted. That's all I'm saying on Correct. it. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, in terms of expanding this outside of Sydney, though, I don't know. I, I, I do understand why the character of Ghostface would 
eventually go other places. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've left Woodsboro. We've, mm-hmm. we've gone to Ohio. We've gone to New York now. Mm-hmm. Ghost Fates has taken Manhattan. <laughs> and you see this figure pop up other places, especially because we see the mask all the time. Ghost face masks pop up in the own universe of Scream. Mm-hmm. It's so easy. You just buy a mask and you have ill intentions. Boom, you're ghost face. Mm-hmm. It's not hard. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that as far as like continuing to make Scream movies are concerned, I think this one is a smart, good sequel because it was conceived as at least a two-part entry, you know? It was, yeah. it was deliberate. There was forethought with it up to, you know, at least this movie. Yeah, I, I agree completely. But of course, as promised, we want you all to hear from somebody who loves Scream 2 more than anyone else on the planet. Michael Kennedy, my friend, take it away. Hello, BJ and Harmony, and this ends at prom fans, listeners, and all of the above. Um, I wish I could have been there for the record, but I'm busy shooting a movie. And I'm a lot busier than I thought I'd be. So I unfortunately was not able to record with my friends. But I am here to tell you that Scream 2 is awesome. And it's awesome because it's not only the best sequel in the franchise, it's probably the best sequel ever made in the slasher subgenre. I'm dead serious. It's amazing. I love Scream 2 because I feel like it is all these amazing and talented and iconic people at the peak of their careers or slash game, if you want to look at it that way. Meaning, I think it's Wes Craven's best directed movie. I think it's probably Kevin Williamson's best writing, although everything he writes is amazing. I think it's peak Gale, peak Sydney, peak Dewey. I think Scream 2 is really where these characters who are already so amazing in Scream 1 become these iconic characters in Scream 2. It's like the best of them, the worst of them, and the most fiercest of them. I also love it because, I mean, Scream 1's amazing, don't get me wrong. It's my favorite slasher movie. Scream 2 is my favorite slasher movie. I mean, they all are. They're amazing. But whereas Scream 1 is just so perfect, Scream 2 as well is as well. And that's why I love it so much. Because what sequel is as perfect as the original? And to me, even better than the original. Um, I mean, set pieces galore. It's just such an iconic movie. You got Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jerry O'Connell, Timothy Oliphant, Laurie Metcalf, Jamie Kennedy, Nev Campbell, David Arquette. Courtney Cox, who's amazing, Jada Pinkett Smith, Omar Epps, Portia de Rossi, Rebecca Gayhart. I mean, even Gus, the theater teacher, theater director, he's an icon. It's just such an awesome movie. It's so scary. It's so thrilling. It's so funny. It's like the peak Kevin Williamson dialogue, too. Like, it's such a time capsule of everything that was going on in the late 90s um, because of Scream. I think it just is like everything. It just solidifies. I don't know. It's just so good. I love it so much. And I hope the audience loves it too. It holds up really well. I don't care what Phil Nobile says. It's an amazing movie. The ending's amazing. Laurie Metcalf is batshit crazy and iconic and... I love the simple motive of revenge. What mother isn't amazing that 
kills for her son, essentially. And I think that's what's so great about the second movie, too, is, like, there's just a humanness to it. It's Sydney moving on with her life, trying to become an actor, while also trying to move forward. It's gay. It's just so good. There's such a human element to the whole thing. And that's what's so brilliant about it, because the motive is so human, and it connects so well with the rest of this human-focused movie. You know? Um, So, yeah, I love Scream 2. Can you tell? Anyway, I love you, BJ. I love you, Harmony. Thank you. The master has spoken. The passion. The passion. (laughs) And on that note, Scream 2 is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Are you buying her tickets so she can go in her room? So, obviously, I have... Not the 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 unbelievable praise that Michael Kennedy does, um, but I'm glad that he's here to shower all of the love he can on this movie. I'm glad you're here because I know how much you love this movie. I think it's good and very well made, but I have my own hangups. The next Scream movie we end up doing will be Scream 4, which is my personal favorite Scream movie, and mm-hmm. that'll be great. <laughs> and for everyone who's like, why aren't you doing Scream 3? They're not teens anymore in Scream 3, so it right. doesn't work. Right. That's why we're not doing <laughs> Scream 3. It has nothing to do with people saying, it's the bad one. But I don't know. It's it's really good. It's a really good movie. It's really mm-hmm. well made. I think it could be better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some changes I would like to be made, but that's because I think that there were changes made, unfortunately, during exactly. it. <laughs> and so it's not anybody's fault for why it is the way it is or doesn't speak to exactly what I want it to do. But no, I'm going to give it a yes, obviously. And We'll see how I feel when we're, once I've had more time to sit with six in my personal rankings, two might still beat it. It might not. I really need to digest on that one a little bit. All right. Let let, let, let maybe some heartburn subside and see how I feel <laughs> about my meal afterwards. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to our sequels month. This has been so much fun. We hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. As always, you can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And thank you to the Sonder Bombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what band do you want people to check out this week inspired by Scream 2? Dude, Scream 2's soundtrack is fucking bananas. This, <laughs> this is one of those late 90s, early 2000s soundtracks that people who are like really edgy think is the coolest shit ever. It's something that could also be like a WWE pay-per-view soundtrack. <laughs> it, it really is like such wrestling fan jock jams. <laughs> like it so is. Um, but because it's like so many different sounds and styles all the way down to um, Less Than Jake doing I Think I Love You over the credits, which is my favorite Less Than Jake song. Um, I didn't really know how to approach this. A part of me was like, maybe I'll just do some 90s college rock, but it didn't feel uh, hard edged and violent enough. So I'm just going to go with all of the things. And the band that I will be recommending this week is called Flummox and their album Refluxed. I think it's like reflux, like mm. acid reflux, because Scream 2 is giving you heartburn, maybe. I don't know. That's how I'm going to tie this in. All right, that works. But this album is extremely uh, 90s and early 2000s, but only in like the really weird, noisy, violent kind of ways where um, it, it's, probably mo- it's probably most comparable to 
Stuff with melody that's also weird and erratic, like Mr. Bungle or Primus or System of a Down, it's just heavy and loud and violent and will change structures probably 20 times in a four-minute song because that's just what it does. So it's really uh, complex and bizarre and angry. Nice. <laughs> so um, as far as like a specific song to recommend on this album... I don't even know where to start because <laughs> all of the songs have a million parts. So I would just say listen to the whole thing if all of that sounds like your jam. Once again, that is Reflummoxed by the band Flummox. Perfect. Alrighty, friends. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. Shit. Hot flash, Corey. Shit. Prank calls are a criminal offense prosecuted under penal code 653M. Mm. Hope you enjoyed the movie. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.